This is a reading from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, found on page 976 of the Pew Bibles. Hear these words from the book that we love. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this life choke it, but that a seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth 30, 60, or 100-fold, as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen. You may be seated. So has your plane ever been late? Young people, has your bus to school ever been late? Or maybe, not to bring up hard feelings, have your parents ever been late in taking you to school or picking you up? Or what about your train to work? I used to work at University of Pennsylvania, and I recall a number of times when my train to and from work was significantly delayed. Now, I don't want to speak poorly of our public transportation authority, so for their sake, we're going to call them SEPTAR, with an, <laughs> kind of like Reptar from Rugrats, SEPTAR. And SEPTAR's West Trenton line which is the one I took, was constantly late. And I also would get so frustrated with Septar. And so I would complain to my wife and I would complain to anyone who would listen to me about it. I just couldn't conceive that a train would be that late that often. So I did some digging to figure out maybe there's a reason behind this. And I found in the Philly Inquirer the reason why. Over 20 years ago, the West Trenton line was experiencing major delays due to an outdated catenary, which is the uh, lines above the trains that, that provide the train power. So what SEPTAR did is they replaced the old wires with new ones, but kept the same system. But that didn't work really well. It didn't age really well. So they switched to a more simple and sturdy two-wire catenary, on most of its lines, like the West Trenton line. So soon that arrangement actually became obsolete, and they also hung the wires too wide from each other. And the result, the wires cracked, and Evan was constantly late to work and getting home for dinner, which I wasn't sure which one I was more upset about. Now, that's all been fixed. Septar has fixed it, and I don't work at University of Pennsylvania anymore. But when I told this story to my wife and to anyone who would listen, I would tell a greater story than just cracked wires. I would tell a greater story of how Septar was incompetent, how the city is not doing anything about this. They're not doing enough about this. Like, why do we vote people in if they're not going to fix things like this? And that no one cares about working Joes like me or Jane's. So my personal story of being late for work or dinner due to cracked wires, what happened is it expanded into a much, much 
greater story when I told it to others. A greater framework, a greater story which made my personal, smaller story much more interesting and important. The same is true as a follower of Jesus on mission. There's a greater story that makes your personal story of faith much more interesting and important. N.T. Wright says this in his commentary on Ephesians. says, only by understanding and celebrating the larger story can we hope to understand everything that's going on in our smaller stories. And so observe God at work in and through our own lives. What he's saying is only if we understand the larger story, only if we understand the greater story that God is doing, can we truly understand our personal stories. And that's how Paul starts his letter to the Ephesians. He starts his letter to the Ephesian Christians with this, starting in verse 3, with this one long run-on sentence, all the way to verse 14, praising God for drawing our personal stories into his greater story. So he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. As I mentioned last Sunday, we want to spend the next five years at Liberty Northeast following Christ into battle for the hearts and minds of those in our region. Whether revival or pressure comes our way. And this year, we want to recover our missional edge. Because we talked about last week, the goal of mission is worship. Mission exists because worship doesn't. The goal is for everyone to be able to worship Jesus. And that's how Ephesians starts. Worshiping, praising, blessing God. Now, the first three chapters of Ephesians, there's six chapters, the first half is very theological. And there's going to be a lot of theology today. So just warning you. If you're like, I didn't come here for a theology class, or some of you might be like, yes, theology. Uh, That's not how most of us operate, so just, you know, let's roll with the first three chapters. They're going to be pretty theological, but the the last three chapters, four through six, are actually very applicational. They tell us how to live. How do we apply this theology to our lives? And in this series, there's this big idea I want us to really understand, is that the redemption that we have received in Christ fuels our participation in God's mission for the world. What we've received in Jesus should fuel us to participate in what God is doing in our world. And today, what I want us to see in Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14, is that we're part of a greater story of a great salvation by a great God. A greater story of a great salvation by a great God. We need to remind ourselves of how our personal stories, including the stories of Liberty Northeast, fit into God's greater story. And in in this greater story, Paul says that Christians have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Blessings, he'll talk about. Past, present, and future. And what are those blessings? John Stott, who's um, has since passed away. Here's a helpful commentary, though. He says the pa- there's three blessings here. The past blessing of election, the present blessing of adoption, and the future blessing of unification. Election, adoption, unification. What's a blessing? 
Tony Evans, he's a pastor in Texas, he says something like this. He says, a blessing is the goodness of God in your life, enjoyed, experienced, and transferred. Sometimes God provides you material blessings. But more often than not, and then Paul says here, we enjoy and experience the spiritual goodness of God. And as we experience the spiritual blessings, we enjoy and experience those, and we're called as followers of Jesus to transfer God's goodness to others, sharing our faith, showing mercy, going on missions. We bless God because he's blessed us to be a blessing to others. But we can't actually bless God or others unless we're able to identify the blessings. What are the things God wants us to enjoy, experience, and transfer in the first place? So the first one is the past blessing of election. Look at verse 4 in your Bibles. If not, it'll be on the screen. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. You have been blessed by God before the foundation of the world. In Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. And theologians have asked for a while, what was God doing before he created the world? It's a good question. Well, Jesus tells us in John 17, 24, he says, Father, he's praying to God, he's God the Father, he says, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. So what was, Jesus, what was God the Father doing before the foundation of the world? He was loving God the Son. Before he created, the Father was loving the Son and those who believe in the Son, Jesus. Paul says those who believe in Jesus have been chosen in him before creation. Isn't that amazing? So God the Father loved the Son, and when you're in Christ, the Son, you're loved too. God was loving you before he created the world. So you might ask, well, how's that possible? I wasn't even born yet. In Genesis 3, Adam eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he brings sin into the world. And because of that, all of us, he experienced spiritual death. And Romans 5 says that we experience that too. And Romans 5 actually does something really interesting. It says that all of us, all humanity, was spiritually in Adam when he sinned. And thus, we're all born in sin. We all experience its curse, and we're all under its judgment. However, God chose us so we can be in Christ rather than in Adam. Amen? So before you were even a thought in the minds of your parents, John Stott says this, says, God put us and Christ together in his mind. Before your parents even thought about having children, God already had been thinking about you in his mind, connected to Christ. He, 
John Stott says, he determined to make us who did not yet exist his own children through the redeeming work of Christ, the work of Christ on the cross, which had not taken place yet. He says, before you existed, God already was doing this before creation. He was choosing you in Christ before Christ even was sacrificed for you. God has so much forethought about you, how much he loves you. Why? Because you are in Christ. And this is what we call the doctrine of election. If you have faith in Christ, you have been chosen by God to be in Christ. So now, instead of living in sin, you're freed from it. Instead of experiencing sin's curse, you experience God's blessing. Instead of being under judgment, you're under grace. And he chose you, Paul says, to be holy and blameless before him. Which implies that without Christ, you are unholy and blameworthy due to sin. Look, it's, listen, it, look at me. It's another reminder that you did nothing, you can do nothing to earn God's grace. And the opposite is true too. Because God chose you in Christ, before the foundation of the world, God was already putting in his mind you and Jesus. Nothing you've done, nothing you can do can keep you from God's grace. You can't earn it, and you can't be kept from it. Now, look, the idea of election might be difficult for some of us. So I often get the question, did I choose God or did God choose me? And I usually respond, yes. Yes, you chose God and freely, but only because God chose you first. But, but I, I made a decision to believe in Jesus, didn't I? Yes. You chose to believe in Jesus and freely, but only because God chose you first. How that works is a mystery. I frankly don't understand it. And we might never understand. And you know what? Honestly, God probably just doesn't want us to understand. He's just like, look, just... Trust me. But if we find the doctrine of election so objectionable, if it offends us so much, we really should ask ourselves, who is God, me or him? If election doesn't bring us comfort and assurance that God would choose me in Christ before the foundation of the world, would I rather my salvation rest on the choice of a finite being like me or on the choice of an infinite God? Which one is more secure? Which one brings you more comfort? So here's just my encouragement. When we get doctrine of election, just rest in the mystery. Just rest in it. That's okay. You don't have to understand everything. I don't have to understand everything. It doesn't mean it's not important, and we don't try to understand, but if at the end of the day we're like, did I choose God or he choose me? yes. That's okay. 
Instead, turn to God in praise like Paul does in, here in Ephesians 1, but also does in places like Romans 11. Listen to what Paul says when he talks about this in Romans 11. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Paul's like, I, this is how he did this. I, like, we might not always understand it, but look, God is wonderful. I don't understand him. I don't understand his riches. I don't understand his wisdom. I don't understand his knowledge, but he is so good. Election is a blessing given to sinners like you and me who deserve hell and instead were given grace. Like God chose Abraham, he chose you. Like God chose Israel, he chose the church. And because you've been chosen by God in Christ, because I have been chosen by God in Christ, we respond with holiness and blamelessness, but also humility. God reminds Israel in Deuteronomy 7, it's a, it's a really um, wonderful passage. And we'd be right to remember too. And he says, look, it wasn't because you were great that I chose you. It wasn't because of our greatness that God chose us. But he chose us, he says in Deuteronomy 7, he chose Israel simply out of his love for them. And the same is true for us. Simply out of his love for you, before the foundation of the world, he chose you. So how can you be sure if you've been chosen by God? Well, election has faith and fruit. Faith and fruit. Do you have faith do you have faith in Christ? You have faith in Christ because you've been chosen by God. Do you see the evidence, the fruit of election growing in your life? It's interesting, Paul could see the fruit of, the election, of election in the lives of Christians in Thessalonica. Thessalonica excuse me. He says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 3-6, he says, I can see that your, your election by your faith, hope, and love that you show. Peter, in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7 and verse 10, he says, the fruit of election are things like this, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. If you do have things like that, if they're growing in your life, you can be sure you've been chosen. Why? Because it means the Holy Spirit is within you. And so building on that, Paul then turns to the present blessing of adoption. Look at, pick up at the end of verse four. Now, the verse numbers weren't in the original Greek, all right? Somebody put them in later. That's why there's this weird, like, first part of a, two words of a sentence in verse four. I don't know. Anyway, pick up there. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the, will of, to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, that's Jesus. God, by his grace, chose us in Christ also to be his sons. And there's two things that come with being chosen as God's sons. First one is privileges. When I started seminary, 
Amanda was pregnant with Giselle, who's up here singing today. And so that just ages me a little bit when I went to seminary. And as the due date approached, my friend, uh, my friend who he and his wife struggled with infertility for about a decade, he got a call, and they were presented with the opportunity to adopt an infant who was going to be born around the same time as Giselle. And Giselle was born first, and my friend's son was born days later. And by God's grace, he and his wife, a couple years later, were able to conceive naturally. But did my friend treat his adopted son with any less love than he treats his natural son? No. Absolutely not. That would be tragic and it would be evil. And as in Paul's day, so in ours, an adopted son enjoys all the privileges of a natural son. So we who've been chosen by God in Christ have all the privileges of being his sons. And what privileges are those? Paul says in verse 7 through 8, in him we have what? Redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, listen to this, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. The Greek word for redemption was used for a slave or prisoner being freed from bondage by payment of a ransom. That's the word Paul is using here. So what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to tell us about the present blessing of adoption. So what's he doing? He wants to take us back to the great story in the book of Exodus, where God redeemed, freed Israel from slavery to Pharaoh through the blood of Egypt's firstborn sons. In Ephesians, redemption is equated with forgiveness. God has redeemed, God has freed you, not from slavery to Pharaoh, but from sin, death, Satan, and hell through what's the ransom payment? The blood of his son, Jesus. And now we experience the same privileges of sonship in the present that Jesus has. Jesus has access to the Father. So do you. So Paul will say in Galatians 4, 7, he'll say, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. So we get the privileges, but we also, there's responsibilities. Later in Ephesians 5, Paul will say, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. When people who've known me my whole life and they know my family, when they look at my sons, they often say something like this to me. Wow, he's definitely yours. Outside of major expensive surgery, my sons can't get away from sharing a resemblance with me. A resemblance to me. And there's good things and bad things about that. My toes are all weird. They got those weird toes. You know, but they're, you know, relatively good looking, so that helps. <laughs> Keeps us humble, the toes, you know what I mean? Look, adoption has fruit too. People should look at us and see a resemblance to God. But do they? Do people know you're a Christian by what you say? 
Do people know that you're Christian by how you act? Do you share resemblance to God's son, Jesus? Is your life marked by the things like the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5, 22, 23 says love. Is your life marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Or is it marked by the works of the flesh? Galatians 19, 21, here's the works of the flesh. Is this what your life looks like? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. Is your, mark, is your life marked by jealousy? Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Galatians, sorry, Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech always be gracious. Let me say that again. Read it again. Let your speech always, you don't have to be a Greek scholar. Always means always. Be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Listen to me. As we approach a heightened political season, Will your speech always be gracious? Like God is always gracious. Would people write of Liberty Northeast the way that they did of the early church? Acts 2 says that the early church was praising God and having favor with all the people. Man, how many churches praise God every Sunday, but they don't have favor with the people around them. How many churches, and we have to be careful it doesn't happen here, we praise God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him and our actions are even further. And so we go out into the world, we go out into the workplace, look, it's one thing, you can be a Christian on Sunday during church, that's easy. The rest of us are doing that. When you go to church, when you go to work on Monday, Would people say, wow, that guy's from Liberty Northeast. Man, they look like Jesus. Like, I would love it if we're all going out after lunch, after church, and everyone's like, oh, here come those Liberty Northeast people. They're going to tell us about Jesus again. They're going to ask me what, I can, what they can pray for me. How about you take that table? Right? That's still favor. That's still fa- a favorable view of us. But we're like, well, I don't want to deal with them because they always leave a 5% tip. I don't think it happens. Trust me. I used to be a server Sunday afternoon, got the church crowd. Man, they're bad tippers. All right, don't be a bad tipper. <laughs> Look, a son who rejects the privileges of sonship but accepts its responsibility is foolish. Right? When we reject the privileges of adoption, what we'll do is we'll constantly try to earn God's love when we can't. And we don't need to. <laughs> Some of us are trying to earn God's love, and God's like, please stop earning it. Just enjoy the privileges of being my son. Just receive my grace. But what we do is we constantly are trying to make God please us, do all of what we think are the right things, do all the religious things, do all the Christian things. And then what ends up happening is we become exhausted because we're trying to earn something we already have. But a son who accepts the privileges of sonship but rejects the responsibility is spoiled. 
if we reject the responsibility of adoption, we'll become spoiled and will ruin our relationship with God and others. And those in our region who are trying to reach won't be able to stand being around people who are so hypocritical, who claim to be God's sons but look nothing like him. And so we'll never be able, we'll enjoy and maybe experience the blessings, but we'll never be able to transfer them to other people. Sonship comes with both privileges and responsibilities. And if you haven't put your faith in Christ, listen, you need to listen to me. If you haven't done that, you are not God's son. And you need to repent. And I invite you to do that and invite you to believe in Christ. But if we claim to be Christians but haven't accepted the privileges or we haven't accepted, accepted the responsibilities, we need to turn to God in repentance and seek his forgiveness and know that God is always gracious when we turn to him. And so then we have the future blessing of unification. So we have the past blessing of election, present blessing of adoption, future blessing of unification. Let's look at verses 9 through 10 making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You are part of a greater story of God who will rescue, unite all creation, all things in Jesus. So later Paul will say in Ephesians 4, he'll say that Christ is already the head of the church, but one day the New Testament tells us the fullness of time will come, everything will be made subject to Christ in heaven and on earth. Romans 8 reminds us that all creation actually waits for our sonship to be revealed. And this great and glorious day will happen when Christ returns and makes all things new, Revelation 21 says. And at that time, God will unite all things in heaven and earth, in Christ. Christ Jesus will bring about this cosmic renewal. It doesn't mean that God will eventually save everyone, that eventually everyone will come to believe in Jesus. Instead, it's a reminder of the greater story that although creation was subjected to sin in Adam, one day, the entire cosmos will be redeemed and renewed by Jesus, including you and I who believe. Like, you know that part, that, that one knee that always acts up when it rains? Gone. You know that part you like about yourself the least? Gone. Fixed. You know when you go to the Jersey Shore and the water is supposed to be clear but looks brownish-green? clear. You imagine going to Cape May in the summer and not being bit by horse flies? I mean, like, come on. Who's with me? It's a great and glorious day. And so look, Ephesians 11 through 14, uh, let's finish with this passage. In him, listen to this, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, again, he used that word, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You and I can take comfort that our lives are not meaningless. Your life in Christ is not meaningless. Your life in Christ is not purposeless. Everything is moving towards this great and glorious day where God will renew all things, reunite all things in Christ. Every part of your story is part of God's purpose. Every part. Your worst days and your best days and all of them in between are part of God's purpose for you. Every step of the greater story, Paul says, comes from the counsel of his will. For the church, for us, God freed us from slavery to sin, Satan, death, and hell. And he gives the entire world to those who are in Christ, all Christians, our inheritance. You know what our inheritance is? The entire world, the entire cosmos, the Bible says. Because one day we'll reign with Christ. I love the way the Jesus Storybook Bible ends. Jesus Storybook Bible is a book we give out here to the kids. It ends like this. One day, John, who's the author of Revelation, knew heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make it our true, perfect home once again. And he knew in some mysterious way that would be hard to explain, that everything was going to be more wonderful for once having been so sad. And he knew that the end of the story was going to be so great, it would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem like just a shadow that is chased away by the morning sun. I'm on my way, said Jesus. I'll be there soon. This is a wonderful picture of the end. When Jesus, when God will unite all things in Christ. But God doesn't leave us there with just a promise of an inheritance. He doesn't leave us with the promise of the future. He gives us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of it. When you buy a house and you put down a down payment, it's part of the full amount that you'll pay. It's a guarantee that the full amount will come in the future. And for most of us, that means 30 years in the future. The Holy Spirit is God's down payment to you. The Holy Spirit is God's down payment that he gives to us. And he gives us part of his promised future now until the full amount comes in the future when Christ returns, when we'll take possession of all of it. And why does God bless us in these ways? God provided you the blessings of election, adoption, and promised unification. Why does Paul say he does it? For the praise of his glory. God is about God. And because he's about God, every step of your story is part of his purpose. He's going to make sure it gets completed. 
because he's about his glory. And because we know the greater story, which makes all of our smaller stories more interesting and important, we're now given the responsibility as God's chosen in the past, adopted in the present, looking forward to the promised unification in the future people. What we do now is we transfer the blessings that we've received that we enjoy and experience already to those in our region by advancing the gospel in word and deed. And my hope is that in this series, as we go through the letter to the Ephesians, you'll be fueled for mission. You'll want to take the blessings that you receive. You're so amped up about those blessings that it fuels you. Like, I got to transfer those to somebody else. That my heart is so overflowing with God's grace and what he's doing. Like a bucket, the water just spilling out all over the floor. That you'll be fueled on mission, following Jesus into battle for the hearts and minds of those in our region. With knowledge, with comfort, with assurance, with encouragement, with a guarantee that you are part of a greater story of a great salvation by a great God. Let's pray.